Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate, bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives, sharing their expertise and life stories, making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, today we have Cindy Warren joining us, author of Radiate on how to cultivate your inner shine. We're also joined by best-selling food writer Julia Tertian on the importance of food and community. In her book, Now and Again, she shares how to get people around your dinner table with delicious seasonal menus and, yes, leftovers. My favorite meals come from leftovers sometimes. And uh, joining us first, we are uh, we have the food shaman, a.k.a. Dr. Michael Fenster. His new book is called Food Shaman, The Art of Quantum Food. And um, I'm going to bring him on uh, and learn a little bit more about him. He is an uh, interventional cardiologist and professional chef. And uh, Dr. Michael Fenster, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Vicki. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you here. And I wanted to... Um, bring you on rather than just read a bio here because I'd like to hear how you got involved with food uh, as a medical doctor and you became a chef. How did that all work for you? Well, it actually worked in the reverse. So like a lot of people, um, I fell in love with cooking uh, around my mom's kitchen. Um, You know, we moved around a whole lot when I was a young kid, and I'm old. I'm going to date myself here. So (laughs) there wasn't Facebook or the Internet or et cetera. And kind of as always the new kid, the outsider uh, there and about, um, kids can sometimes be cruel to the new kids. So the kitchen was always a refuge for me. My mom always welcomed me. Uh, We went there and, you know, we cooked meals. So I always had a love of food and that food experience. And then in college, to help uh, pay for college and work your way through it, uh, it was very natural for me to get into the food industry. And at that time, nobody, there were no celebrity chefs except for Julia Child. I know I'm dating myself again. Uh, maybe Graham Care from uh, New Zealand. Oh, I remember uh, him. But, <laughs> yeah, so no, nobody wanted to, to, you know, to work Friday and Saturday nights when all your friends were out and finish at 2 in the morning and smell like dishwater because I, I started as a dishwasher and then worked my way up. Eventually, then I went to medical school, and, and believe it or not, uh, after that, I did go back to culinary school and complete a degree in gourmet cooking and cake. Well, very good. Very good. And so the book, I, I want to be clear here, it's not about learning to become a shaman. You address that very early on in the book. <laughs> yes. Um, you say it's like an, executive, like an executive chef, the food shaman runs a spiritual pass between meal creation and consumption. So let's look, let's look at what you mean by that. Well, I think that touches onto something it sounds like one of your guests is going to also emphasize a little later, which is what I call that, that food experience. And what we're learning is that if we look at the impact of what we eat, it extends beyond mere sort of nutritional guidelines of eat this, don't eat that, percent RDAs. What we find is that the soft edges uh, with whom we eat how we eat, when we eat, these are all all turning out to have a huge impact on our overall health. And it relates to our relationship, our interconnectedness through this uh, food experience. And so the individual relationship we have with food is very important. 
And through that, we establish relationships with each other. And then, of course, our society and culture at, at large is reflected and can be reflected and explained in the story of food, because ultimately the story of food is the story of us. Right, right. So we've done a number of shows on healthy nutrition, on balanced diets. Um, you've just explained what you mean by uh, taking a shaman approach to this. But how else does this book, in your mind, vary from other books that are out there on the shelves? Because when you go to a bookstore, it's overwhelming how many books on food there are. Well, and we, in fact, make a point of sticking very hard to a lot of the scientific data. So there's about eight, 900 footnotes in here. So folks can look this up because we destroy a whole lot of uh, food myths. Essentially, you know, and I think the data is continuing to accumulate to show that the direction we take in with respect to food and health for at least the last half centuries has been completely wrong. Most of what we know, um, it, it's, com it's completely wrong. And I can give you a quick example uh, by that. Maybe only in the last decade or so, we actually have learned about the gut microbiome. So that's a hundred trillion bacteria that live inside of us, mostly in our intestines. And that hundred trillion bacteria outnumber our human cells 10 to 1. So 90% of what makes up us as a, as a superorganism, 90% of what first processes the very food we eat, it's not us at all. Always makes you wonder kind of who's in charge in the grand scheme of things. But these nutritional guidelines and so forth, they've all been written, um, the edicts have been given without ever understanding what this very important symbiotic organism, uh, as it relates to us, almost an endocrine, another endocrine organ inside of us, uh, the impact of that. And so we find that things like zero-calorie artificial sweeteners, which we say, hey, those are safe. They don't affect human cells. You know, go ahead and drink those diet beverages. And then we wonder why we see this increased risk rate of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease in people who subscribe to uh, that regimen. Well, it turns out that those additives affect our bacteria in a negative way that sets us up for chronic, continuous, low-level inflammation, which starts obesity associated with diabetes, atherosclerosis, heart disease, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, and the like. So we go through and, and really kind of destroy uh, and address and reconstruct, I think, a fundamental change in the perspective of the way we view food. We, we've been taught to, to look at food in very broad categories, red meat, chicken, vegetables, RDAs, when in fact we have to look like chefs stocking a kitchen and understand there's the quality, not the category. Uh, the drive through burger with uh, 4,000 additives on the sugar-sweetened bun is not the same piece of red meat right. as grass-finished bison. Right, right. Um, there's a quote in the book, and I'm glad you I'm glad you kicked off with the gut because that's exactly where I wanted to go. But um, <laughs> there's a quote in the book by Hippocrates, and I love this. It says, "All disease begins in the gut." And I was thinking of a guest we had on the show, uh, and her husband had died of a brain tumor, but they found the brain tumor because he couldn't. He was he had hiccups all the time. He just hiccuped all the time. And then I was watching uh, a news report last week and a woman there had ovarian uh, cancer stage four and she had no symptoms that she could feel uh, other than indigestion. 
And you talk in the book about how Parkinson's disease uh, can be um, predated or, or, or 20 years ahead of time. There's something going on there in the gut. That's absolutely right. And that, that comes from a report, uh, a study done out of France. And, you know, what we don't take into account, really, uh, some uh, anthropologists and, and evolutionary biologists actually say that our big brain in our head actually just developed to feed our first brain, which is the which is our gut. And, and it is wired and loaded with neurons. Um, you know, basically, our gut has the intelligence on its own of a dog or cat. And as a dog lover, I can tell you my dog is incredibly smart and can do all sorts of tricks and, and is probably not as well behaved as she should be at times. But she's delightful. She has her own personality. And, and that amount of neural processing lives in our gut and is constantly talking back and forth with our brain, talking to our cardiovascular system, talking to our renal system, talking to our nervous system, both the peripheral and the central nervous system. And then, this is the amazing part, inside of that gut are these bacteria, and they are communicating with us as well. So, for example, many of the healthy bacteria in a healthy gut microbiome, for example, secrete serotonin. In the gut, the serotonin helps regulate the timing of the process of digestion. But, but some of that serotonin gets into the bloodstream, goes up to our brain. And what do we prescribe for people who are sad, Vicki? We give them serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm -hmm. In essence, we try to increase through uh, pharmacology, uh, through big pharma, the level of serotonin in our brain. Well, there's bacteria in our gut that do that when we eat properly for ourselves and literally a happy gut physiologically stimulates your brain and makes you happy. And likewise, depression can be associated with the development of bad bacteria in the gut. It's all interconnected. And that's, that's part of what the food shaman, the art of quantum food, seeks to explain to folks is that there's an interconnectedness of all things, the bacteria, ourselves, and then ourselves with our environment and each other. Right, right. So let's look at uh, food as therapy. You have um, you talk about this toward the end of the book. There's a lot of science in here, as you said. Um, it's not a. I, I just want to make it clear to listeners: it's not a picture book about food. Um, there aren't recipes <laughs> and menus in here. It's a lot of science in here. And uh, how many pages of references did you say? How many pages of footnotes? Well, there, there's a lot. There's a whole appendix of uh, you know extra scientific studies at the end for folks who want to get in the weeds. But as I said, the book destroys a lot of what people are being told uh, that is the gospel, that, you know, you, the diet, you have to watch dietary cholesterol. You can't eat red meat, uh, saturated fat, and fat is bad for you. So the book goes through and, and destroys all those preconceptions uh, that have been out there. And my feeling is, boy, if I'm going to tell folks not to do what the mainstream is telling them, we better have the science to back it up. And so that's why there's all those quotes in there. So folks, you, as the Buddha said, don't take my word for it, you know, only if it agrees with your common sense. And I footnoted that common sense for you so you can <laughs> look that up. <laughs> right, right. And so you have a segment in here about mindfulness. Food is a gift. Eat the present. Why is mindfulness? I mean, I, I got the impression very much from reading your book and from your opening uh, talk here that um, no more eating over the sink for single folks, right? <laughs> 
Well, yeah, because and, and, what we what we are learning is that all these soft edges um, impact us. And to give you um, again, sort of a, a uh, example grounded in science, uh, when we when somebody sits down and they're feeling depressed and they eat, you know, four or five, six pints of Ben and Jerry's with sugar and chocolate and all those uh, good things, it goes to our brain, the same part of our brain that processes opiates, and literally, like a drug, it makes make them happy. And that's a typical dopaminergic pleasure reward response. But when we engage mindfulness, when we take a moment uh, of our meal and approach it with an attitude of gratitude, we're actually triggering a different neurochemical pathway. We're, we're exciting what's called the oxytocin or the love hormone uh, response. And that's much more like a mother's love for a child. That's not something that attenuates or habituates over time. The more you do it, the, the Beatles had it right. The more love you give, the more you get in the end uh, when we reinforce those types of neural pathways. And in fact, that's what we find when we change our attitude, uh, when we, we can have a physiologic a neurochemical response that is one that enhances our body and we get away and we drive ourselves away from this position of chronic stress. I travel, you know, a great deal around the country and I can't tell you how many people I see just walking through the airport, eat endlessly, mindlessly, you know, taking gobs of, you know, a Cinnabon that's, that's the size of a, a check-in suitcase. <laughs> oh, I know. They uh, <laughs> yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and that is not mindful eating. That's mindless eating and and just stimulating ourselves with sugar, which has become a drug in the modern Western diet. So really, you know, taking charge and, and approaching it with a certain attitude, uh, sharing that communal meal, being engaged uh, in conversation with somebody, we're finding that these all have very positive health benefits much, for example, and I talk about this briefly in a book, it's, it's sort of peripherally related to food and, and sort of where we eat, but, you know, for decades, the Japanese concept of walking in a park has, and, and immersing yourself in, in nature has been covered as part of their national health program. And, in fact, what we can see and demonstrate scientifically is just a walk in the woods will actually lower your blood pressure. Turns out that trees, particularly certain kinds of trees, actually secrete something that we absorb that acts as an antihypertensive. Right, right. Interesting stuff. Now, as a chef and as a doctor, I've got two separate questions here, really, but what surprised you the most during this really intensive research, intense research that you did? What surprised you most as a doctor? What surprised you most as a chef? I think they are kind of related because it's very hard, you know, at this point for me to separate the two out. I'm sure. But I think what what continues to amaze me is that when I end up answering questions about how to pursue a healthful diet, um, I end up telling people how to be a chef. It has nothing to do with with clinical nutrition or uh, you know, the sort of the weeds of your cholesterol level and this and that. It's about how I would run and how I have run, you know, kitchens about getting real wholesome, authentic food, the very best quality pro- produce and product I can, and, and preparing it, you know, in a, in a mindful uh, manner. And, and so that always strikes me as a little odd is that the best health advice I can give is actually comes from 
you know, wearing my chef's hat, uh, as mm-hmm. it were. And from a physician's standpoint, I think maybe not the most shocking, but the most disappointing thing for me is uh, how behind the times and how immobile uh, much of medicine is into acknowledging all the statuses out there. You know, the people in, in medicine, in my opinion, we employ a little bit of neutral, what I call neutral logic uh, when we look at these situations, which means if we find some sort of study, as obtrusive as it may be, that seems to support our position, well, that gets on the front page, and we pound the pavement about that. But when we find all this data that doesn't make sense, we just label the paradox, the French paradox, the Inuit paradox, the obesity paradox, and the list goes on and on and on, and we just push it to the corner. And, you know, science is not about preconceived notions. Science is about really to prove ourselves wrong. And when we see all these paradoxes out there, we need to go back and look at the fundamental hypothesis and say, did we get it right or did we get it wrong? And I think we've gotten it wrong, and that's what the data is beginning to really accumulate and show us. And and it just bothers me that because of financial pressures and egotistical pressures within academia and people have made their their careers on low saturated fat and so forth, uh, that we argue, you know, in the face of really incontrovertible evidence to the contrary. Mm. Interesting stuff. A lot of reading in this book, um, but some really uh, eye-opening studies. And I was particularly fascinated by uh, what we talked a little, little tiny bit about today, uh, about what's going on with the gut and the brain. So a uh, final very quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with, Dr. Fenster. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me, Vicki. And I think you really summed it up. What I've tried to leave for folks here is, you know, a... Um, volume that you'll go back and reference again and again. You'll read it several more times. And then as soon as folks head over on Amazon and pick up their copy, they will be smarter than their doctor. Thank you so much. And I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to leave this segment with a quote that you include in the book uh, from Anthony Bourdain. Good food leads to good sex, as it should. <laughs> yeah. <there's> the tease. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you so much, Ricky. And let's uh, give people a website, that, please, uh, before you disappear on us. Oh, sure. It's chefdrmike.com. That's chefdrmike.com. And folks can uh, head over there and, and catch uh, all the information and links. Super. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we will be joined by our next guest, Cindy Warren. And my guest, we just spoke with Dr. Michael Fenster, his book, Food Shaman, The Art of Quantum Food. Stay with us. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. 
Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Did you know that capsizing boats and people falling overboard account for over 70% of boating fatalities? 80% of those fatalities occur on boats under 26 feet and on boats with operators who've had no formal boating instruction. 50% of all boating accidents involve alcohol. Be smart this summer. Know who you're boating with. Wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket and don't drink and boat. This message is brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair and the JMB Group, who wish you safe boating fun. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. Next week, Dan Millman returns to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair for the revised 25th anniversary edition of The Life You Were Born to Live. And nature writer and storyteller Susan Hand Shetterly takes us on a journey from her native Maine to Canada, Wales, Japan, the Philippines, and beyond. And she reveals the hidden world of one of nature's most abundant resources. Tune in Monday at noon Pacific time and Friday at 6 a.m. More at conversationslive.net listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to brighten your day. Find out the latest about your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Check out 1150kknw.com. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. We are talking in this segment with Cindy Warren. Her new book is called Radiate, Using the Practice of Yoga to Cultivate Your Inner Shine. And Cindy is a uh, yoga and meditation teacher. She teaches at Yoga Roots, which is uh, by her home in Ohio. And in addition to being a yogi, she's an employment lawyer with her own consulting business. I'm guessing she needs yoga for that. Uh, she incorporates the eight limbs in helping business and businesses and managers reach their highest potential. Welcome, uh, Cindy Warren, welcome. Thank you so much, Vicki. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm glad uh, you could join us today uh, as you're scooting out on vacation. I appreciate you spending the time with us. And the, this is a, a slim little book, but I like it because, as I told you during the break, um, you approach yoga not just as a bunch of poses. It's so much more than a bunch of poses. So tell us, tell us how you look at it and why you wanted to write this book. That's exactly right. So I've been immersed in a yoga practice myself for a little over 15 years, and I've been teaching for the last several years. And I'm always surprised when I am talking to students or even other teachers or people that don't practice yoga, that so few people know yoga is more than physical postures and that so many people and teachers out there are not really incorporating it. And for my own uh, yoga practice and sort of spiritual path, incorporating what we call the eight limbs of the practice has been a really transformative part of my journey. And I wanted to share that with others. Right. I like the story that uh, is at the start of the book. You uh, say rumor has it um, that someone asked Michelangelo how he created the statue of David. And he said, I didn't uh, create David. He was already there. Um, yeah. all, all he did was chip away at the parts of the stone that weren't him and that's what you say yoga has done for you. It's chipped away at what didn't serve you 
uh, so you can become who you truly are supposed to be. That's exactly right. And I think so much of the practice, it's, it's sort of an interesting way to think about it. When we think about transformation or change, it's not that we need to do more, be more, look like more, have more muscle. It's that we need to understand that we're already perfect and we need to shed our limiting beliefs and ideas about ourselves and others that have clouded that. So how did you find your way to the mass, as you call it, in the book? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm a big exercise person. I've always been a runner. Back in the 90s and 80s, I taught step aerobics. And so I was initially drawn to it because I heard it was a great workout. And depending on the kind of physical yoga you want to practice, it is. It can be an amazing workout. So that was what first drew me to um, a local yoga studio. And what I found was that the little lessons the teachers were imparting during class and even just the calming effect the practice had on my nervous system, which is really different than other forms of physical movement, just seemed to like stay with me for a long time when I was done with the practice. And it just kept me coming back for more and wanting to learn more. Right, right. So I became a very dedicated student pretty quickly. Yes, I wish I could grab onto that dedication and keep it. I've been taking yoga since I was 16, but then I go off it for a couple of years and then I come back to it and I'm like, why did I stop doing it? And I just <laughs> went back uh, about five weeks ago. I think I, this is my sixth week. And I had been weight training about five times a week at the gym. Felt great. I go to a beginner's yoga class. I couldn't flipping move the next day. <laughs> You're kidding. That's amazing. Just, it really does work the body in a different way. And I think weightlifting, you know, especially for women as we're getting older, is so important. And yoga is such a lovely complement to it. Yes, it is. So let's look at some of the, um, the limbs that you, as you put it, um, that we don't normally look at. And yeah. um, the, the internal results, I think, are one of the things. I know that I've had several situations in my life where, uh, you know, you could blow up or you can act calmly and deal with it. <laughs> and I think yo that comes from yoga with me a lot. It's just, uh, uh, it helps me to think things through um, without even really realizing it. But you, you say the internal positive restraints and self-discipline that you create for yourself is a, is a huge thing in yoga. It is. And what you just described, I, too, have noticed tremendously in my life. Um, I think we all have a different sort of set point of reactivity. And I happen to have been born with a pretty quick-to-react kind of personality. So, um, you know, and even if you're not that kind of personality, what I found with the practice is it really helps me create space between stimulus and response. And you start by just practicing on the mat. Someone puts you in a pose, and you're told to just breathe and stay, and you want to get out of the pose. And instead of running out of the room screaming, you stay in the pose and continue to focus on your breath. And that sort of discipline, um, which relates to the internal restraints or niyamas, as they're called in Sanskrit, really does translate to your life, you know, if you're on the road and someone you're tempted to beep, maybe you like pause and think, wait a minute, let me just take a breath. Do I really need to beep the horn? Sometimes you might, but oftentimes you don't. Right. And I found that practicing the le little lessons I learned on the mat and by studying philosophy really translated into my everyday life in a way that just made me more skilled at 
going through my days. Yeah, you, it, the, the niyamas are all about honoring yourself, uh, yes. you, our relationship with ourself. Um, so pretty important, I think, especially in today when we have today's lifestyle, when we have so much uh, coming at us, so much sensory overload. I agree completely. So I think that the way and the pace of technology and society is to be so externally focused. And there's so many parts of the yoga practice. The niyamas is one of the main ways, but there's also another limb um, called pratyahara that is literally translates to sensory withdrawal. And it's all about getting quiet and going inside. And we need reminders in today's day and age to do that because of the fast pace of modern society. Right, right. So the Dharanas uh, talk about uh, focus on the, the power of concentration and heightening our awareness, which I think is um, goes hand in hand with what you just talked about, because um, we've got all this sensory overload. We have all these distractions. Studies are proving um, we're, we're getting more and more ADHD uh, as yeah. a society. And so um, how do we get that full power of concentration from yoga what what's where's that stemming from the meditation practice is such a huge part of the overall yoga practice um to me it's even more important than going on a mat and taking a downward facing dog and working to get into an arm balance or calming the nervous system meditation is a practice that the the original yogis back in india um many many years ago they only practiced physical yoga so that they could comfortably sit for hours on end and meditate. And it's really the mental practice, even if you didn't want to develop a meditation practice, which is something I have a daily practice and I find it very helpful. But even if you didn't want to do that, just starting to incorporate some of the tools of mindfulness and concentration, whether it's taking a few moments of stillness or doing it in the physical practice, um, but I think meditation is the quickest way to really tap into that inner stillness right. that provides so much solace to the multitasking and all the ills of the technological age. Right. And I know I practiced this one on the freeway this morning. <laughs> I was very, very <laughs> conscious of it. Pranayama, the, the importance of yoga, yogic breathing. Yes. It's, yes. Uh, when you become aware of, of breath and how it, um, speeding it up can make you anxious and slowing it down can make you calmer. It's, it's so healing. It's so powerful. And it's something that we just take for granted because breathing yeah. is just something that, that happens automatically. We hope. Yeah, we hope. <laughs> right, exactly. It does until it doesn't. Um, but, yeah, I think, and part of it is you can read the book, study the philosophy, take the lessons, and then you're going to have days where, it all goes out the window if something really upsets you or trips you up. And I think that's okay. That just means you're human like everybody else. And one of the things that I really think is important to incorporating the yoga practice and the meditation practice is being gentle with yourself and not holding yourself to impossible standards. Right. It's not about being perfect. Right. Well, you talk very openly in the book about having an eating disorder at one point. So how did this help you get through that? Yes, and I developed an eating disorder, a binge eating disorder to be exact, sort of later in life in my 20s, which is a little bit unusual. And before I started practicing yoga and really becoming a, a student of the practice, I had almost an incessant stream of negative self-talk, which is something that maybe, you know, some listeners are familiar with. 
I was just constantly hating on myself. And once I sort of learned about the power of self-acceptance and being gentle with yourself and started to incorporate some of that in my inner life, noticing the way I talked to myself, changing the inner dialogue, I really did start to find some healing then. And it was ironic because I wanted to change my destructive behavior so badly, which is why I was, you know, as I say, hating on myself, telling myself how messed up I was and how undeserving I was. It wasn't until I could accept exactly where I was myself in that moment that I was able to change. Yes. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, many years ago when we first started the show, I talked with a journalist who was actually kidnapped in Iraq. Um, wow. And, and he eventually was let go, but, but did, he'd had the uh, video made with the hood on and the death oh. threats and all that stuff was released. And he, the journalist society act, uh, you know, was very active in his release. Um, but when I asked him what was the single thing that that kept you going through that, he said, "I know it sounds corny, but I think it was my yogic practice. I've done it for so many years. I just kind of went inward and focused on what I could control and used the meditation and the breathing, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So I think that that's incredible. Yeah, it is, and I think that story when I when I read, looked at your book, I thought. That story kind of um, proved how important it is when you're doing yoga, not just to focus on the poses, but to to do the whole spiritual aspect of it, the mind-body-spirit connection. Right, right. Absolutely. And man, I haven't been tested like that journalist was, but um, in the little, the smaller tests I've had in my life and that most of us probably have, it's incredibly helpful to develop an inner, an inner life, an inner peace. And so um, do you still have days when you struggle? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I'm far, far, far from reaching the, the final limb, enlightenment, as we call it, samadhi. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I have a teenage daughter, so I'm test, tested pretty much daily. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, some, some days I navigate those, water, those waters better than others. Um, but when I do mess up, either in how I'm dealing with my daughter or anything else that happens in my day, I, I pretty quickly can come back to center, forgive myself, make whatever redress in the world I need to make, apologize to my daughter for losing my cool again, and move on. And isn't that what it's about, really? It's not about, as you said earlier, it, it's not about being perfect. It's about how quickly you come back, and with continued practice, you find yourself coming back more quickly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then there's a little more, there'll be a more number of days in between the the instances where you find you need to apologize to someone for something stupid you did. (laughs) Right, right, right. So what do you hope listeners will take away from the book, Cindy? I really hope that whether or not they develop a physical yoga practice, that they look into the more spiritual internal aspects of the yoga practice, understand it intellectually, and then start to apply it to their life just so they can have more contentment and compassion in their life. Mm -hmm. And so for people who are thinking, well, this is just one more thing I have to add to my day, my already (laughs) overscheduled busy day, how do you incorporate that on a daily basis? An easy way is doing the physical practice, whether it's once a week or twice a week or, you know, seven times a week, having some sort of regular practice or finding a teacher or a group of students to connect with once in a while. 
You could even start a book club at the yoga studio where I teach. I have had a book club for a few years now, and we just get together and talk about yoga books. And it's a nice way to learn the philosophy and talk about incorporating it and make some friendships along the way. That's a good idea. Cindy Warren, thank you so much for being with us today. Such a pleasure, Vicki. Thank you. And the book is called Radiate, Using the Practice of Yoga to Cultivate Your Inner Shine. And Cindy, do you have a website to go along with this? I do. It's www.yogaheightbook.com. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being with us today. Thanks. Bye-bye. And please do stay with us. Uh, We are going to talk more about food. Uh, We're going to look at the book now and again when we come back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Next week, Dan Millman returns to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair for the revised 25th anniversary edition of The Life You Were Born to Live. And nature writer and storyteller Susan Hand Shetterly takes us on a journey from her native Maine to Canada, Wales, Japan, the Philippines, and beyond. And she reveals the hidden world of one of nature's most abundant resources. Tune in Monday at noon Pacific time and Friday at 6 a.m. More at conversationslive.net. Let's see if I, I guess that, (sighs) this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Oh, yeah, that could work. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to New Pro Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, August 12th, it's a Helen Sunday. That means our very favorite National Geographic explorer and best-selling author Helen Thayer joins me in the studio. She'll update us on her return to Death Valley with her new dog, delight us with more of her incredible adventure stories, and answer all of our questions on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Do something different with your spare time. Give baby animals at Paws a fresh start. With the assistance of caring volunteers, Paws helps hundreds of orphaned and sick kittens and puppies each year. Join us and save lives. Become a Paws foster care volunteer. For more information, visit paws.org or 425-787-2500. Paws.org or 425-787-2500. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Find out about upcoming shows at conversationslive.net. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. 
And welcome back. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is Julia Tertian. Her new book is called Now and Again. And uh, it's go-to recipes, inspired menus, and endless ideas for reinventing leftovers. And uh, Julia is the best-selling author of Feed the Resistance, named the best cookbook of 2017 by Eater, and Small Victories, named one of the best cookbooks of 2016 by the New York Times and NPR. And she's co-authored numerous cookbooks and hosted the first two seasons of Radio Cherry Bomb. Julia Tershin, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, pleasure having you here. And um, I know that when you wrote this book, you did it with three goals in mind to instill the idea that the meal doesn't have to be difficult and or expensive, that leftovers can actually be fun and inventive, and to give readers the inspiration and information to gather people around their tables. So let's talk about how you came up with the idea. Sure, yeah. Um, those goals are all, all accurate. <laughs> um, I came up with the idea mostly uh, from this idea of leftovers, which I've always loved. Um, and we were talking just before the show, I feel like the world can be divided into people who either love or, or hate leftovers. <laughs> right, and, right, right. I, I love them. Um, so the book actually started as an idea to just do a book of reinventing leftovers. Um, and I came up with what I thought was a pretty sort of cheeky title, which was to call it It's Me Again. And I thought that was so fun and it would be useful, but I had this big problem of where did the food come from in the first place, uh, you know, for the recipes. So the book uh, sort of expanded itself into a much larger and I think actually much more um, helpful and fun book. So it's all all menus, um, all my favorite meals and memories and, you know, all the recipes to make those meals and then tons of ideas for ways to reinvent the leftovers. Right. And I love that it's broken down by season, too, because we don't see yeah. that. We don't see that too much anymore in cookbooks. Yeah, I like it very much because I think a big theme of the book is just telling stories. Um, you know, each each menu is, is a story. And I think um, seasons just help us sort of to break up the stories and break up the year in a very you know natural way. Right. So I wanted to touch on that storytelling aspect of the book, because you say that creating menus is not about entertaining, uh, because that can feel intimidating. It's about storytelling. So how do you, when you're creating a story for your cookbook, how do you go about telling that story? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think uh, it's important to sort of reflect on that um, You know, particular about it not being so much about entertaining, because I think... Uh, that idea of entertaining can really intimidate people. Um, it can mean, you know, having to plan far ahead and having to think of all these details and having to, you know, have some sort of artificial feeling of, of pressure to show off. Um, so when I put together a meal, if I'm just cooking dinner for myself and my wife on a normal, you know, Monday night or if we're having friends over, I think of it less from a place of, you know, I'm wanting to impress people more to what kind of story do I want to tell and how do I want to make people feel with that story and the answer to that is always just really comfortable um, you know for me yes yeah so let's talk about connection um, because I know that this is a big huge part of uh, food for you is that connection and having people come around your table and eat and it's something we just have lost the art of here unfortunately um, although I think with so many great food channels and great uh, cook uh, cookbook writers now 
we're, we're, we're having a little uh, little restoration of that. Um, so, but what is it about the connection and food for you? Yeah, I think that um, food is, it just gives us this, um, how should I put this? It's like a tool. <laughs> you know, when we bring people around a table, uh, if if we don't have a meal, I think of that as a board meeting. <laughs> you know, it's stiff <laughs> and it's uncomfortable and you don't know what to do with your hands and you don't know where to look and um yeah, really uncomfortable. But the minute you put food on that table, you know, and it could be a few bags of potato chips or, you know, a fancy meal or just sandwiches from a, a deli, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy uh, to be effective, um, but it changes everyone's body language and it changes how we uh, communicate with each other and truly how we connect with each other. And I think for so many of us, I know it's true for myself, when I think of my uh, most meaningful times with friends and family, when I think of at some of the most um, important conversations I've had, um, you know, these moments of true and deep connection, they were over meals. You know, they were at um, my kitchen table or at a restaurant. Um, you know, food is, is really, really powerful because I think it lets us let our guard down and, um, you know, gives us the time and space to really just talk with each other and be with each other. Yes, I would agree. I agree. Uh, food was a big connector in my family, too. Um, so let's talk about leftovers. <laughs> I'm I'm one also who likes leftovers um, because we were raised not to throw anything away. You know, my grandparents uh, went through two world wars and rations and all that stuff. So it was a cardinal sin to leave food on the plate for for a start. But then if there were leftovers, um, we always use them the, the next day. And they were some of my favorite meals. Um, so let's talk a little bit about why, why do some people just not like leftovers? I mean, you'd have to ask them because <laughs> I love them. But I think I think it comes from this idea of, um, you know, just having the same thing again. I think for some people they feel like that's boring. Um, I think for others maybe they feel like the food isn't as fresh. I think that's a big um, theme I've come across when I've asked people about leftovers. They feel like it's, you know, it's old. Um, you know, it's not good anymore. And I think that's a really important thing to understand that, that you know, cooked food can keep in your fridge for, you know, at least a few days. Um, and and it, it can look totally different when you've recooked it, when, you, when you've served it again, yeah. Yeah, it, you don't have to have the same meal again, though there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, there's certain things like pizza that are just delicious, you know, even cold out of the refrigerator. Um, but I think what's so exciting to me about leftovers, what makes me um, feel inspired as both a cookbook author and a home cook is that, you're already more than halfway there. You know, you have something cooked and ready to eat, and you have this invitation to just transform it. Um, but so much of the hard work has already been done. Yeah, yeah. So at the back of the book, you've got um, notes on tools and ingredients. You've got some great things in this book, actually. That's one of the things I loved, um, tools and ingredients. Is there a tool, one tool, one ingredient that you would not be without? Mm, great question. Um, I mean, the sort of most obvious answer, I would say, for a tool um, is honestly just, you know, I feel lucky to have two working hands. Um, I use my hands for everything. Uh, but aside from that, I'd say one tool that I use all the time that maybe not everyone has in their kitchen is something called um, a spider, which normally is not something you want in your kitchen. Right. Um, but it's, you know, it's like a, it's a very inexpensive um, handheld, uh, like sieve, basically, uh, and you can find them a lot in Asian cooking stores and grocery stores. Um, and I use it all the time, whether I'm 
you know, lifting vegetables out of a pot where I've blanched them. Um, if I just want to rinse off a few, you know, berries or something like that. They're amazing when you're frying something. They let you pick food out of, you know, hot oil and let it drain right there. Uh, I think it's just indispensable. And they're so cheap. <laughs> um, and they're just really, really useful. So mm. I like those a lot. Um, and in terms of an ingredient, one thing that I really couldn't sort of live without, um, in addition to kind of olive oil and salt, which I think are just, to me, are kind of automatic. Right, <laughs> right. I would say lately, um, I, I use pickled jalapenos in so many things. I love them. Um, you get a little spicy kind of kick, um, you know, because it's a hot chili pepper, but you also get that kind of acidic, briny, pickled flavor. Um, I love throwing them on, on eggs or sandwiches. Um, I like chopping them up and mixing them into things. I love them. I think they're great. Oh, that's, uh, I'm going to get one of those spider things you just talked about. That's, that sounds really good. Um, yeah, they're really useful. Yes. And the other thing that I really loved in this book, which you don't see in a lot of books, um, you have at the end uh, a book of lists, if you will. Um, <laughs> seven things, seven things to do with not so new produce, seven things to do with typical leftover, uh, takeout leftovers. Uh, seven things to do with leftover wine. This is one that always gets me. So maybe we can uh, come up with a suggestion here, um, <laughs> Julia, because um, I I know when I've had people over, I'm always left with, you know, you inevitably uncork another bottle or whatever, and I'm left with that bottle of wine there. Yeah, I think it happens frequently. It's funny because that, um, you know, list of things, when I spoke to some friends about it, you know, asking if people thought that would be a useful thing to include. I had some friends who looked at me like I was crazy, like, how could you not finish it? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'm often in the same position you are, where there's just a little bit, you know, too much for me to finish on my own or, you know, all my guests have left. Um, so I tried to think of some really fun and useful ideas of things to do with leftover wine. And, um, yeah, some of my favorite ideas include... Um, mixing some leftover wine with a little bit of um, orange juice, actually, and freezing it in ice cube trays because, uh, you know, alcohol on its own won't freeze completely. Mm. And those sort of uh, wine, juice, ice cubes, and you could substitute a different type of juice if you want. Um, they're amazing to chill down a big pitcher of sangria because when they melt, they don't um, dilute the sangria. It just sort of adds more kind of wine and fruit to it. So those are really useful. Um, and you can also cook plenty of things with leftover wine. You could braise pork with leftover red wine and some cherries. Um, you can cook down tons of onions with wine and use it almost like a condiment, you know, on a grilled cheese sandwich or fold it into, um, you know, like a braised meat dish or something like that. You can even cook pasta and wine and make um, something I like to call like drunken spaghetti. <laughs> and it's delicious. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's some great tips in there. So um, I'm... I want to ask you a question that you said changed and challenged you. And mm. that question came from a friend and fellow cookbook author, Nicole Taylor. And she said, when was the last time you had more than one person around your dining table who didn't look like you? So what was your response? Sure. Yeah. Um, Nicole is an amazing, amazing cookbook author. And, and I'm lucky to call her a friend. And we were talking one day about um, kind of how we were just talking about a few moments ago um, about the power of, of food to help connect people. Um, you know, and we were reflecting on both of us just having so many, you know, 
wonderful memories around the table and um, how much we both love to cook for people as a way to gather people and, and um, you know, deepen connections that are already there and also create new connections. And in that conversation, she asked me that question of, you know, when was the last time I invited someone over who didn't look like me? Um, and it really challenged me to think about not just, um, you know, maintaining the, the friendships and the relationships I already have, but also the opportunity I have as someone who loves to cook and loves to invite people over, um, you know, the opportunity to make new connections and to get to know people who, you know, I have a different background from. Um, and that question of, you know, someone who doesn't look like you can also be someone who doesn't think like you or, you know, is right. from where you're from or, um, you know, just has a different opinion or, or worldview on things. Because, again, I think food just gives us that chance to really get to know each other in a way that feels familiar um, and I think really friendly. And I think cooking for someone is just such a gesture of love and to extend that to someone new is a really, you know, very deeply meaningful thing to do. Mm. So I know you write a lot about cooking and you uh, talk a lot about it. You cook a lot, obviously, uh, for your cookbooks. So do you ever find yourself in a creative slump? And if so, how do you how do you dig out of that? Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it happens not all the time, but it definitely happens. Um, and I just like I think everyone else, I also you know get stuck in ruts a lot where I feel like I'm just cooking the same thing over and over again. Um, and Sometimes I just, you know, let that happen, and that's okay. And I'm lucky to have, you know, good, healthy food, and, you know, I try not to stress about it. Um, but when I'm feeling in a creative rut, I, I turn to cookbooks. I flip through them. I have a big wall full of them. Um, and I also get out of my own kitchen. You know, I live in a very rural area um, where there aren't a ton of restaurants. Um, so I cook at home every single day. Uh, which I love, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. But sometimes when I, I feel in that kind of rut, it, it feels important to get out of my own kitchen and my own head and just um, go eat somewhere, uh, you know, where someone's preparing food that I don't typically make at home. And right. uh, for me, that's often there's a uh, an amazing, amazing Jamaican restaurant near where I live called Top Taste. It's actually half an hour away from me, but I it's, it's worth the drive and then some. Well, it sounds um, good. Yeah, and Julia? I love going there, and it reminds me of how much you can just learn about food from another culture, you know, in, in your backyard. Yes, and there's the inspiration. Julia Tushin, it's so great speaking with you. The book is called Now and Again, Go-To Recipes, Inspired Menus, and Endless Ideas for Reinventing Leftovers. And photographs are by David Loftus. Do you have a very quick website uh, you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's just Julia Tushin at, uh, com. Great. Thank you so much, Julia. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you. And we're right at the end of our show, so we have to scoot out of here. Um, you can find me at conversationslive.net, 800-495-7617 if you have questions or feedback and uh, would like to get a hold of me and on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Next week, Dan Millman returns to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair for the revised 25th anniversary edition of The Life You Were Born to Live. And nature writer and storyteller Susan Hand Shetterly takes us on a journey from her native Maine to Canada, Wales, Japan, the Philippines, and beyond. And she reveals the hidden world of one of nature's most abundant resources. Tune in Monday at noon Pacific time and Friday at 6 a.m. More at conversationslive.net. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 
4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772.